Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Well, hello, my name is Curtis Triplett, and I will be your host for the Therapeutic Thursday podcast. This episode is supported by an educational grant from Nova Nordisk, Inc., and I'm a clinical associate professor of medicine in the Division of Diabetes at the University of Texas Health San Antonio, as well as working at the Texas Diabetes Institute, part of the university health system, where I'm extensively involved in type 2 diabetes research. In addition, I manage and educate diabetes patients with an endocrinologist. I'm honored to have Sue Cornell with me today, who is an associate director of experiential education and an associate professor of pharmacy practice at Midwestern University in Chicago. She also practices at the Bolingbrook Christian Heal and Will Grundy Medical Clinics, where she educates and supervises interprofessional students who provide diabetes education and medication therapy management for patients in numerous underserved community clinics. Thanks for joining me, Sue. Glad to be here today, Curtis. Thanks. So let's get started talking about today's topic. Today, we're going to be talking about getting to the bottom of hypoglycemia. The fear is real. So one of the things I think, just as a lead-in, we should probably talk about is really acknowledging that insulin therapy is a key management tool in type 2 diabetes today. Uh, One of the things is, is that, in fact, many of the people, by the time they've reached 10 years of type 2 diabetes, more than half of our patients may be on insulin therapy. So to deny the fact that we put our head in the sand and say that there's no such thing as hypoglycemia and insulin therapy is really unreasonable because of the fact the majority of our patients eventually will end up on insulin therapy. But that doesn't mean that there are not challenges. So one of the examples of, of a challenge, I think, in insulin therapy can really be the fear of hypoglycemia. So with the fear of hypoglycemia, one of the things that we have to really think about is the fact that many of our patients use this fear in order to delay, delay, you know, clinical or therapeutic inertia is so common in type 2 diabetes today. So one of the first talking points I think that we maybe should really get to the bottom of is what is so scary about hypoglycemia, Sue? You know, and it's an excellent question, Curtis. And, you know, you, you mentioned patients are afraid of hypoglycemia, but I think it's even practitioners are afraid of hypoglycemia. You know, that's one of the biggest barriers we have even in talking with people. And the scary part of hypoglycemia is, one, other than it makes you feel like crap, uh, patients hate that. But the other thing is it is fatal. It can be deadly. You know, people can run at higher glucose levels, and true, they may have some complications, but typically they can be managed. Hypoglycemia, on the other hand, if not treated or if treated inappropriately, can literally kill someone. So I think it's the fear factor that hypo is literally deadly and we want to prevent it at all costs. But kind of talking a little bit about patients too, it's the fluctuations, as you know, the fluctuations in glucose that make people feel crappy. You know, they just don't feel right. And especially when they start going low, they really don't feel good. And people become so afraid of hypoglycemia that they will run their sugars higher purposefully because they never want to feel that way again. And so I think that's what makes it scary, again, not only for patients, but 
practitioners as well, because practitioners, we want to help our, our patients. And when we're afraid of hypoglycemia, sometimes our fears carry over even to the patients. Really good points. So, you know, in, as a pharmacist, you know, we work with people all the time. So what do you do to kind of put your patients' minds at ease when you're working with insulin and to kind of calm them down on hypoglycemia? Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think there's a secret sauce as a, as a pharmacist for, for allaying the fear of hypoglycemia. One of the things I think is really that we just need to do our diabetes education, one, two, three ABCs. We really need to talk to them about where they're at now, what their fears are, and, and really understand where, where they're coming from. Because I, I think one of the most important things that I hear all the time is that, um, you know, it's, the, the reason for being afraid uh, varies per person. It could be that their Aunt Myrtle had a hypoglycemic reaction and had a really bad outcome, or it could be that they've heard from their friend or it could be that the uh, even sometimes, as you said, the clinician has put it into their mind that, oh, well, one of the things I don't want you to have is I don't want you to, to have a hypoglycemic reaction. And so I think education is really the key to managing the fear. Start with where the patient's at and move them forward. You know, I don't think it's an unhealthy fear to, to fear hypoglycemia. I think that it's it's something that is manageable though. And I think that's important for pharmacists to understand that any of us, if we had a hypoglycemic reaction, would realize that, as you said, people feel crappy. It's a, they feel anxious. They feel, they don't feel well. And so going through those aspects, you know, it's a healthy fear of hypoglycemia is what I call it. So we really want our patients to be aware of the risk and just properly management. And as a pharmacist or a diabetes educator, I think we go through the same principles that come into play. So we want to educate them about the risks and manage that risk. So, you know, when we talk about it, we always talk about the, the same kinds of issues for uh, working through those problems, such as food. We talk about how you need to use carbohydrate, a rapid-acting carbohydrate, in, in the face of uh, hypoglycemia, that it's manageable, that we want them to take 15 grams of rapid-acting carbohydrate and check their sugar again at 15 uh, minutes. We as diabetes educators and pharmacists also know that we need to think about other situations, such as whether they're drinking alcohol with that or whether they're exercising with that. Um, also, to really recognize those signs and symptoms that are so common, because uh, as you know, we, we have a lot of people out there that are not even uh, sure that they're having a hypoglycemic reaction, so we need to encourage them, check their sugar more often, understand sweaty, shaky, concentration issues, things that they may chalk up to being tired or fatigued from a long day at work. Many times we need to tell them, you know, or vision changes, tell them these are signs and symptoms of hypoglycemia. You need to check your sugar and figure out if that's where it's at. So really from an education standpoint, I say it's a healthy fear. It's something that we want them to understand, but understand that it's manageable risk and move forward from there. Any other last uh, thoughts on that too? Well, and I think prevention is always the best medicine. So, you know, as we work with our patients and as they become familiar with how their body responds to certain foods and exercise and, uh, you know, different things in life, lack of sleep, uh, too much sleep, 
stress, people start to realize, you know, what their sugar, how their sugar responds to this. And I know we're jumping ahead a little, but I think, you know, again, prevention is the best medicine by people recognizing what can cause hypoglycemia. We can make efforts to try to potentially prevent it or at best minimize it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so today, one of our focuses is really about insulin. So uh, what, what are some of the insulin strategies you use to prevent and manage hypoglycemia, especially like maybe for basal insulins? You know, and actually, this is a, a really interesting point because I had a patient that, I, well, I should say I'm dealing with a patient very recently now who was recently diagnosed with type one. So actually, and she's an older woman, so type one and a half. You know, she was, she's in her 70s and was diagnosed recently. So of course, she was in the hospital, left the hospital with Detamir, which as we know is a basal insulin, but not really long acting. And newly diagnosed, starting to learn the system, but she was having frequent hypos. So going back to, again, prevention is the best medicine. One of the things that we look at is the newer basal insulins today actually have less hypoglycemic risk than the, you know, tried and true, the older traditional insulins. So we've come a long way in terms of technology with even developing insulin. And so, you know, we actually were fortunate enough that we switched this woman over to Degladec. And since then, she has never had a hypoglycemic event. So, you know, it's amazing where the newer insulins do actually provide that longer coverage. So your Glargine U300s, your Degladecs, you know, with that longer coverage, we're seeing less hypo with the basals compared to, say, the NPHs of, you know, yesteryear. Now, with it being said, again, going back to, again, prevention being the best medicine, I work in an underserved community clinic, and if we don't have samples in our refrigerator, these patients can't get these drugs. And sometimes, especially when a pandemic hits, access to medicine becomes a little bit of a problem. So sometimes we have to do the wrong thing, but if we can do the wrong thing the right way, we can at least make the most of it. So for example, you know, we've had to send many of our patients to the pharmacy to buy over-the-counter NPH insulin because the fact we couldn't get them into an appointment and you know, just lack of getting to a healthcare system, uh, delivery of the medications to their home, et cetera. So getting the, the insulin into the patient's hands sometimes can be a challenge. But bottom line is going back to, okay, now we're switching this person to NPH. How do we prevent hypoglycemia? Because it's truly a higher risk hypoglycemic basal agent. And it's just making sure the patient eats on time, not skipping meals. You know, when you dose, you you eat, and then you make sure six to eight hours later, whatever you're doing, it's eating, even if that means a bedtime snack. And then once again, too, before going to bed, check your sugar. And if your sugar is less than 140 at bedtime, have a snack with protein. So, you know, making sure that they don't go low overnight, having the old Samaji effect. But, you know, we've come a long way with these basal insulins that if we can use the newer ones, we really are minimizing and potentially preventing those hypoglycemic episodes, especially nocturnally when the patient's asleep and doesn't know it. Now that leads us to, of course, what about prandial insulin? So what's your experience in terms of prandial insulin strategies? Well, it's interesting you say, because I always kind of think about the prandial strategies as 
having multiple inputs. So one of the things about the the multiple inputs of of a of a postprandial type of a hypoglycemic situation is it really has to do with the the input of the insulin, but also it has to do with the meal, and it may even have to do with exercise, and it may even have to do with special situations. So, for example, if the patient happens to have additional comorbidities, such as like a gastroparesis or something. So moving all these different factors together, one of the things that, you know, we kind of do is kind of figure out which one is the, the one that's causing the problem. So, for example, with just insulin therapy itself, on the old days, and I don't say old because, you know, we're using regular insulin more, but we used to use regular insulin a lot. And one of the things that we would tell our patients is to inject that insulin 60 minutes before the meal. A lot can happen in an hour. So all of a sudden you get distracted. You know, many times my patients would uh, delay the meal. Then they would start going hypoglycemic even before the meal with regular because they had to inject it so far before the meal. And what ended up happening with our patients is truly they would just end up injecting the regular insulin close to the meal. And so what would happen would be a mismatch where you would get postprandial hyperglycemia. And then eventually what could happen eventually later is they might get a little hypo. So really with regular insulin, one of the things that we've really had this nice improvement on is rapid acting insulins. And rapid acting insulins, uh, not as much as hugely improving A1Cs, but just improving quality of life. What we found is that, you know, this is something that we're not telling you that uh, everyone doesn't know, but remember that this is a huge difference to be able to look at your meal and then to inject your insulin based on what the meal is in front of you. So looking at the carbohydrate count, saying, oh no, you know, I thought I was going to have mashed potatoes, but instead I'm going to have broccoli. Just simple things where all of a sudden the carbohydrates are much different. So rapid acting insulins have really helped us from a quality of life standpoint. And now we even have... uh, FDA-approved insulins, the ultra-rapid, there's a couple of ultra-rapid insulins on the market that allow you to even um, give the insulin after the meal, up to 20 minutes after the meal. Now, we were doing that with rapid-acting insulins for years, but it wasn't FDA-approved per se. So the reason to do that is because you're not sure how much the person will eat. We especially did that with kids. So you're never sure how much uh, children are going to eat out of the meal that was in front of them. So you're always afraid if you gave the full dose of insulin that they were going to go hypoglycemic. So you would wait until they were done eating, then give the insulin. So there's some advantages to even giving the insulin after the meal as far as helping with matching so that the person doesn't go hypoglycemic. But probably the biggest one that's the mismatch, I think, is food. So what happens is people either under or overestimate the carbohydrate in the meals. And sometimes, uh, as we know, you can also get some of these instances where people are eating certain foods, which we as diabetes educators and pharmacists know really affect sugar, such as Chinese food or pizza. Some of these situations where you get these long kind of tails to sugars that are elevated from these foods. And those are things that we really have to think about. The other thing to think about is exercise. So if people are going to have activity within the first couple hours after a meal, sometimes we're going to have to tell them to check their sugar more often. Uh, If their sugar is lower, they may have to take a snack. If it's higher, especially in type 2, we're okay with that. Type 1s, of course, when it gets high enough, we worry about their sugar going higher. But it has to be pretty high, you know, above 300, 250 for us to start to think about those things. So overall, even exercise. And then 
We also have to kind of incorporate into that postprandial how intense the exercise is going to be, how long they're going to be exercising for, and to just keep checking their sugar and have some source of uh, rapid-acting sugar next to them, whether it be a Gatorade or something else that they enjoy so that uh, we can really manage some of those points. So I, I think in the postprandial, yes, it's insulin, but we also have to incorporate in some of these other factors, you know, special factors such as gastroparesis. You know, we have a few, especially type 1s who have gastroparesis, where the food emptying is so varied that sometimes what's happening is their sugar is not going up till an hour after. Sometimes it goes up right away. Sometimes it goes up two hours after. So we really have to kind of match that insulin with uh, when their sugar is going up, which is very difficult to do. And we're going to be talking a little bit more about some of the strategies that may help that in one of our further podcasts. So one of the other points that I, I wanted to make was really, how far do you think we've come in improving hypoglycemia? Do you think we're, we're on our way to uh, helping manage and reduce the risk of hypoglycemia, or do you think there's still a lot farther to go, Sue? Well, you know, it, the answer to that is yes and no, because as you've already pointed out, you know, it depends on the person, the person with diabetes and, you know, how engaged they are in managing their condition. And we all have people that are very engaged and motivated and, you know, keep very diligent records of their blood sugar and what they eat, a food diary, activity, et cetera. And then we have others that really don't care as much or they're not as invested. And, you know, so it, it depends on the person. But from a technology standpoint, I think we're, you know, we've come so far. You know, again, the, the advantage, I guess, to being the old person in the room here is the fact we've seen so many changes. You know, back when I graduated from pharmacy school with my bachelor degree, which was before you, uh, you know, we had NPH and regular and the, the analogs were just starting to come to market. So from where we were and to where we are now, we've really come a long way. These newer insulins, as you've talked about, you know, the quick ultra rapid acting, which I like to call warp speed, you know, so that warp speed insulins and the very long steady basal insulins really have the lowest hypoglycemic risk. I mean, when you look at the data from the ultra long acting and you look at the data from the warp speed insulins, it's very clear that that hypo risk is much lower than with other traditional insulins that we've been using. So again, going back to technology, we've come a long way. But then enter the patient, because no matter how good the product is, unless the patient uses that product correctly, the product isn't any good. So, you know, how many times we see, and, and I'm sure you see it as well, you know, I've worked with people that are, again, discharged from the hospital, and they were given a rapid acting insulin in the hospital and they have a rapid acting insulin at home, but they're two different names, you know, two different drugs, but both are rapid acting and they end up coming home and they take both. You know, so again, there's risk factors. One of the biggest things too is, you know, we get older or we don't even get older, we forget. And when you're talking about taking multiple injections of insulin, especially for type ones or type twos as well, and they have to do multiple daily doses, it gets kind of 
you know, confusing. Did I take my dose? As you pointed out back with the regular insulin, you had to take it 60 minutes before a meal, but then you got a phone call from a friend and you're on the phone with them and you haven't even started cooking dinner. So now suddenly there's a delay in the time from when you took the insulin to when you're going to eat or your carbohydrate plate has changed. So little things happen and then you're already done with your dinner and you're like, hmm, did I actually take my insulin or not? I better be safe and I'm going to take another dose. So, you know, the nice thing is with technology, and I know we'll talk a little bit more about this later, but, you know, we now have smart pens and we have insulin pumps and we have continuous glucose monitors. So when we're partnering the technology of devices with the biotechnology of the drug, I think that is what is really exciting. And I think we're just on the edge of it becoming even greater than what it is now. Really good information. One of the things you were talking about, which I think is so important, is some of the really interesting new technology technologies that are out there available to help. And one of the things I wanted to mention to people is that we're going to have an upcoming podcast that's going to be talking about some of these technologies. So we can kind of really delve deeper into some of that uh, as we move forward. Any last comments, Sue? I think the biggest thing is educate before you medicate is a line that a tagline I like to use. Pharmacists are in a very great position to make sure they provide that education before the patient takes their medication. Because again, we can have the greatest product in the world and the greatest drug, but if the patient isn't using it correctly, the device or the medicine, or they're not taking it at the right time to get the best effect, that's where problems can actually occur. So again, educate before you medicate. It's a great point. Yeah, education is really, really the key to minimizing hypoglycemia for our patients. They really have to understand to avoid how to recognize, how to treat. And if they're doing those different things, I think that they can really at least manage the risk, even if we can't avoid hypoglycemia sometimes with insulin. So that's all the time we have today. I certainly want to thank Sue for joining me to discuss how we are we as pharmacists can help allay the fear of and prevent hypoglycemia in our patients with diabetes. Also want to have you join us here at ASHP Official for more ASHP Advantage Engaging the Expert episodes and every Thursday when we talk with experts on a variety of clinical topics. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.